You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 123, covering the week of May 28th through June 1st, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. You can follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. You can like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And, of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville I-N-S-T. You can find all those things on our homepage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you have all our social media buttons. While you're there, give us an email address, and we'll give you a free ebook for Patrick Sales Emancipation Hell, and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday, as well as our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday with a link to this podcast. Also remember that we exist on your generous contributions alone, so if you'd like to help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. You can do so by going to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Support. Click on that, and you'll see Donor Options. You click on the Donor Options, and you've got our new donor interface. You can donate as little as $3 a month if you're a student, or $5 a month if you're not a student, or you can do that annually, $25 a year if you're a student, or $50 a year if you're not a student. We have other options as well, and you can donate what you like. So we have a new interface page. It's really nice to use, very easy to use. Uh, So go on out there and check that out. Also remember we have our 16th annual summer school coming up July 15th through 20th. Space is limited, and it is running out, and time is running out to get in all that. It is Southern Identity through music. It's going to be a grand time. We have Bobby Horton as our keynote a presenter on Wednesday night for our banquet. So we got a lot of great stuff going on, a lot of great speakers, including yours truly, along with a number other of other uh, fine musicians, including Alan Harrelson, the Grammy-nominated banjo player. So we have a lot of good uh, topics, a lot of good information. So go on out there and check that out. It's also on our webpage. Middle of the page, you'll see a little place that says you're invited. Click on the link there. You'll find all the information on how to get involved in that, how to contact Dr. Livingston. Also remember that Father's Day is coming up. We do have our Abbeville Institute gear. You can get your hats, shirts, uh, golf towels, fleece jackets, all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, uh, Going out to our uh, online store on our webpage, you'll find a button that says Shop. Click on that. It'll take you to our our, uh, online store where you can buy those products. All those products do help us uh, in our mission to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And you are promoting the Abbeville Institute at the same time. And also don't forget to download our app. Go out to your application store on your mobile device and get our Abbeville Institute app where you'll get all of our lectures, this podcast, and of course access to the website on the go. So a lot of cool stuff. Your donations have helped do all those things. And uh, we're really uh, excited for those products and services. And we do thank you for everything that you do if you do help the Institute with your donation. Okay, well, let's talk about the week that was at the Abbeville Institute. We had a lot of, I think this was a really good week in terms of articles. Um, And the general theme goes back to the book review that we published on Tuesday, Cracks in the Treasury of Virtue, which is a review that Clyde Wilson wrote uh, several years ago, um, and uh, back in the um, early 80s. And it's a book review of two books, Division and Reunion, Division and Reunion excuse me, America 1848-1877 by Ludwell Johnson and uh, The Secret Six, John Brown and the Abolitionist Movement by Otto Scott. Now, that book by Ludwell Johnson is now titled North Against South, and you can find that on Amazon. It is probably the best 
single volume on the war and the sectional conflict. So uh, you want to go out there and pick that up. If you don't have it yet, highly recommend it. But the interesting thing about this review and why I like this review is that it talks about this treasury of virtue, what we have called on this podcast the righteous cause mythology. And that righteous cause mythology, that treasury of virtue, is what is driving the current assault on all things Confederate in America. And it's not just all things Confederate. It's all things traditionally American. In fact, what I think you can see and what's going on in America today is an assault on old America. When the war took place, if you look at the composition of, say, the Union Army or Abraham Lincoln himself, and, and by the way, this weekend uh, where this podcast is coming out is the birthday of John Randolph of Roanoke and Jefferson Davis, so uh, two great patriots of the South. When you look at what was happening with that, you had one America representing the traditional America, which was the South, and the other which was a new a new America, a new American nation, a new American empire, Lincoln as the ordinary Western man, the large numbers of immigrants who were serving in the Union Army, the crusading zeal, ultimately, of the war itself and then Reconstruction, uh, this idea that the Union was sacrosanct and had to be saved at all costs. That was a new America. That was something that uh, was alien to the founding generation. Those that try to put those things together, they say the Lincoln was a continuation of Jefferson. It's just it's ridiculous. On the other side, you had Jefferson Davis, who embodied traditional America, the South, Robert E. Lee, that embodied traditional America, a fairly homogenous popul population, uh, fighting for the principles of the Jeffersonian Federal Republic. And so you had this clash, and still today you have that clash. But the, the problem is that that new America took on a sort of religious zeal, a worship of the state, of centralization, of what America could be. And so when you have conservatives today talk about uh, their love for Lincoln, they're undermining their entire position. Well, they don't even realize they're doing it. But by celebrating Lincoln, by celebrating the Republicans of that particular period of time, you're creating a, a climate in which you cannot criticize a central authority because what would be the point? You're celebrating the central authority. Now, This idea of the treasury of virtue, as, as Clyde Wilson writes, the standard really is the treasury of virtue, the writer's self-congratulation on being one of the elect, on not being a sinner such as they. This is what's happened to the historical profession. It's being on the right side of history. And so that was generally a theme of this particular week of material. Ludwell Johnson would not be confused as a guy of worrying about being on the right side of history. Neither would Otto Scott. Uh, Ludwell Johnson's book, which is now North Against South, is very critical of the Northern War effort. It's very critical of Abraham Lincoln. It's 
at least critically positive of the South. And so that is not being on the right side of history today. Uh, as Clyde writes in this piece, the South is always found wanting by the investigator, always found to fall short of his standards. But the standards are never stated. One may deplore inequality of wealth in the Old South, for instance, without ever being required to look into the question of whether such inequality was any greater or even as great as in the North or Europe. One may investigate and condemn violence or militarism in the Old South endlessly without ever having to say how it compare with the like elsewhere. The virtue of the elsewhere, by comparison, is simply assumed. To vindicate it is the chief motive for the investigation, not to discover the facts. And that's the problem that we have with our current political climate. We have a false dichotomy of a victorious North that was morally justified in everything that it did, the good guys against the bad guys. And we've started to see idiotic platitudes like the North fought for the simple reason of eradicating slavery for moral reasons. This is what people now are starting to believe in America. And so as a result, those who were fighting against that North were demons. This is we're going back to Henry Ward Beecher saying that, you know, essentially the South were devils. That Charles Sumner, in his speech, The Crimes Against Span Kansas, where he said that Southerners were the uh, vomit of society, of the world. You see, in that type of climate, you can't real have real historical investigation because you're already operating from a position where the one side is subhuman. This is exactly what Thomas Nast did in virtually every political cartoon he ever made. He portrayed his enemy, whoever it was, the Catholic Church, the Irish, the South, the Democrats, as subhuman. When he drew, and of course Thomas Nass was a famous 48er, a red Republican. When he drew images of the Irish in St. Patrick's Day, they were apes. When he drew images of Catholic bishops, they were alligators coming out of the water to consume Americans who, Native Americans, who were not like him. I mean, this is a guy from Germany, directly from Germany. Uh, so this is the perspective that we have on this war now, this treasury of virtue, this righteous cause mythology has established a false narrative in America, and that false narrative in America is what is driving the eradication of Southern symbols. It's driving the elimination of Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis or virtually any other Southerner that does not fit within the narrative, even Thomas Jefferson or George Washington. Those who are honest will say they want to get rid of them too. Those who are honest will say they want to <laughs> destroy the United States Constitution because that is a vestige of the South and the Southern tradition, though I could quibble with that. But certainly... Um, we have a situation in America where we no longer have real historical inquiry. We have platitudes, and those platitudes are driving our historical scholarship. Now, there are historians who will buck the trend, but they apologize incessantly for saying, I know I'm writing this book, I know I'm saying things here that are not of the standard fare, but I really don't believe them 
In other words, please don't not hire me and please give me tenure. Because those who believe in the treasury of virtue control the entire historical profession, from the top to the bottom. I was just told the other day on social media that there was a student who cited one of my books in a paper on Lincoln. And the professor, for no reason, said that they didn't want them using that book because they thought I was too controversial. No other explanation was given. It was just that I was too controversial. It was a personal attack on me. Not what I had said in the book, not the merits of what I had said about Lincoln or the presidency, but just simply an attack on me. Now, that's a good thing. I mean, at least I'm irritating the right people. But on the other hand, someone who is trying to advance in the establishment historical profession will not get a job with that kind of reputation. And so you have to weigh those things out. But this is exactly what we're dealing with overall in all of history. So this is why the Abbeville Institute exists, because we want to provide that critical other. And more and more people are finding that. We get emails all the time, I didn't think there was anything out there that thought like I did. I'm the voice in the dark. I'm the only person that thinks this way. And then you find the Institute and you say, oh my gosh, here are thousands and thousands of people that think like me. Here are people that believe in bashing the treasury of virtue or the righteous cause mythology that understand that that's simply what it is. It's a myth. More potent and wrong than the quote-unquote lost cause myth, which everyone seems to want to tear down for some reason because they think it's, it's the boogeyman, right? It's, you have to have the enemy. And somehow this boogeyman is ascendant in American history. Well, if you really look at the situation, there's no way. Now, of course, Clyde's uh, title of this piece comes from Robert Penn Warren's The Legacy of the Civil War, uh, where he talked about you know what was this legacy, and, and he mentions this treasury of virtue, or the treasury of counterfeit virtue, because that's essentially what it was. There's no real virtue in the Northern War position. But uh, people tend to believe it. So we have this starting point, and then from there we see the attack on the monuments. And so on Wednesday, we ran a piece defending the monuments by Dr. Boyd Cathy. And he, he wrote much of this to defend the North Carolina monuments that are under attack, particularly Silent Sam and others across the state. Of course, Silent Sam now has been defaced. There are protests there all the time. Uh, when I say defaced, people have spray-painted it. Uh, one idiot went out and put her blood all over it because that supposedly was, and this is a Ph.D. student in history. I mean, this is ridiculous stuff. That person should be working on uh, polishing up their understanding of history, not running around cutting themselves and putting blood on a monument. How ridiculous. But it probably wouldn't do them any good because they wouldn't learn anything anyways. Uh, th the fact is, you have laws in place to protect these memorials, yet every elected official who believes in this treasury of virtue, and that's the problem because this is what they think, and they put their finger in the wind and they think, well, this is what the modern political perspective needs to be. So these people that believe in this treasury of virtue now are running around trying to figure out a way 
to take down the monuments because they're evil. Uh, and of course, the part of this that's, this is a legal brief, essentially. You can't do this because of all these different parts of this law, and this, of course, is illegal. Um, but Dr. Cathy also gets into the idea of why these monuments were built. He says, 100 years ago, prominent establishment historians such as Charles Beard and Avery Craven and North Carolina's own R.D.W. Connor could variously envisage the 1861-1865 war as essentially about economics or perhaps constitutional principles fought by good and sincere men on both sides. In recent years, opinion has reflected the views generally of those leftist historians such as Eric Foner that the war was specifically and uniquely about slavery and racism. But the essential facts haven't changed, even if much of historical opinion has. The accusation, he said, has been made that those who erected the monuments did so to celebrate racism and its triumph legally, specifically in the form of Jim Crow legislation. However, certain researchers have also pointed out that the suggested congruence and symmetry between the enactment of Jim Crow legislation, the erection of monuments, and to the Confederate dead, are misplaced and historically questionable. The example, he says, that is uniformly cited to prove a racist origin is a racially hateful remark made by Julian Carr at the unveiling of the Silent Sam Monument at UNC Chapel Hill. Yet Carr's comments, which are discordant with the rest of his 3,200-word speech, are contextually out of place. While they do represent a racially charged aside, they stand out as real exceptions to the meaning Invested by the organizers and supporters of that monument, a meeting that is quite clearly to honor the veterans and their sacrifices and not to celebrate slavery or the evils of racism. But see, the problem with all of this is that this is logically sound. This is true. But we're not dealing with people that deal in logic anymore. They deal in emotion. We're dealing with emotional people, with emotivist reactions to things, the treasury of counterfeit virtue. When you think about the treasury of virtue, that is an emotional response to history. I want to be the good guy. I want to be on the right side. I think there are things that are morally reprehensible in the 21st century. And so I must go and take down anything I find that might be morally reprehensible. It's an emotional response. Cutting yourself and putting your blood on a monument is an emotional response, not a logical one. This is what uh, McIntyre called emotivism. And it's a problem because these people don't really care about real history at all. So we're arguing a position that's very hard. You're arguing with people that don't really want to hear anything but their own emotional response. And that's odd, and I've talked about this in my own podcast, because for years leftists didn't want to be considered to be emotional beings. They wanted to be considered rational beings. I remember I had a feminist professor who would say, don't use the word I feel or the, the expression I feel, say I think, because I think carries more power, because you're a thinking person, not an emotional person. She was very conscious of being singled out as simply an emotional woman who's feeling everything. She wanted to be a firm-thinking person 
who wasn't feeling but thinking. Uh, as Boyd Cathy says, let me suggest in conclusion that the real reason for this proposal, which means taking down the monuments, has nothing to do with finding a better or more appropriate place for the targeted monuments. Rather, it involves politics and a particular ideological interpretation of the factual record that these monuments, their present, presence equals the defense of slavery and, in fact, racism. If this is the standard that is now adopted for memorials, then nearly every monument on Capitol Square must logically be removed, including the monuments of Presidents Washington, Jackson, Polk, and Johnson, even to the North Carolina governors, all of whom could be considered racists or defenders of racism. Even the Vietnam Veterans Monument has become a target, as there are those who see American involvement in Vietnam as an example of racism. Our question then must be, where would such a process inevitably end? Already plaques honoring George Washington have been removed, and efforts are underway to banish Christopher Columbus and Father uh, Sarah in California and rename our military institutions that bear the names of Confederate generals. And Presidents Jefferson and Jackson have also begun to suffer erasure and exile. The list seems to increase almost daily. That idea of erasure is what brings me into the piece on Thursday. Lee the Philosopher by R.M. Stangler. Of course, that title comes from an essay by Richard Weaver, Lee the Philosopher, but he's attacking the decision of a Missouri school to change its name from Robert E. Lee Elementary School to Locust Street Expressive Arts Elementary School. You almost couldn't parody that. If we were going to pick a name for a school, you almost couldn't parody what you would call it. Locust Street Expressive Arts Elementary School. Of course, the school, as you said, is on Locust Street, but Expressive Arts? What the heck does that mean? It's not about education, it's about expression. Think about the term expression. What is that? Emotion. It says everything you need to say about this current, as Stangler calls it, great erasure, because it's about emotional expression. The attitudes that are being uh, expressed by these individuals, which of course is all emotion, is that this school preserved, the name was preserving white supremacy. That has no meaning anymore. What does that even mean? It's an emotional, it's, a, it's designed to, have, to elicit an emotional response. It didn't represent a diverse student population. Robert E. Lee fought to preserve slavery. It doesn't promote welcome and access to all students. It's not inclusive. It doesn't help students prepare for the future. These are some of the statements that were made when the name was changed. Think about those statements. It's all about emotion. We have become a society that has no brain whatsoever. We only have a heart. Now, having a heart's a good thing. Having a heart is part of Christian humility. Having a heart is at the core of Christian forgiveness. But on the other hand, when your entire position on politics or society is based on how things make you feel, about the id, the me, or as one uh, uh, professor I had, a Spanish professor said, when it's all about viva yo, long live me, uh, that's when you start having a problem. And of course, this is what Stangler gets into in this. 
uh, when it's all about me. Uh, he says, we are all egoistic impulse. We are all glorification of self. This is the dismal reign of identity politics in which a student can be irreparably harmed, it seems, by simply seeing a name above the door which excited strong feelings. Feelings. The, the point of education is not feelings. It's about knowledge and discussion and seeing things that you don't agree with because that sharpens your own pencil. But when you take all of that away and you have only one, this is the goal of Marxism. This is the goal of Big Brother in 1984. You have one side of anything. We're doing this now in a way that's soft. We don't have the government coming in and saying, we're going to erase history. We're going to put it down a memory hole and then burn it, and then you got to rewrite it. We have a government bureaucracy to do this. We don't need to do that because we have people themselves who are doing it in society because there are things they find offensive. And so eventually we're going to have American history begin in 1975 because anything before that, and maybe even not even till then, maybe not even till uh, we have come to our senses and recognize the evils of all of our sins of the past, and that would begin, say, maybe in 2008. I don't know. Pick a date. 2008 with the election of Barack Obama, when we've eradicated all of the sins of the past. But that hasn't completely happened because um, we still are playing identity politics. We haven't had all the different identity groups elected to be the president. So I guess when that happens, when all the different identity groups have been represented as a president, we can say we have fully exercised our demons of the past, and now we can begin writing American history, because this is what's happening. It's the great erasure. We're not confronting these difficult questions. And as Stangler writes at the end, the problem with all of this is that we're, we don't have teachable moments anymore. He said, if the Board of Education had truly wished to educate, the members would have borne, this, borne in mind this thought from Weaver. Fully interpreted, Lee's duty is the means whereby freedom preserves itself by acknowledging responsibility. Had Lee's name been kept above the door, the school could have used it as a wonderful tool for acknowledging responsibility and thereby, thereby for preserving freedom. Yes, they could say we Americans have done terrible things in our past. No, we still aren't sure how to balance our historical errors with our achievements. Yes, we used to cherish the memories of men we might now see as less than great. No, that does not give us the right to erase our shared cultural legacy. We must all live with what we have done. Erasing a monument does not erase the event that inspired it. Alas, the students at the Locust Street Expressive Arts Elementary School will hear none of this. They will hear no word of the man who said human virtue must be equal to human calamity. They will study only the men and women we consider today to be winners with no awareness that in a generation or two we will come to believe something else entirely, and the great erasure will begin anew. Uh, Sam Irvin said that one of the reasons why Southerners are who they are is because they lost, because losing shakes the glory out. We, if we celebrate only the winners, you get no glory. Why is it we love Braveheart? Why is it we love William Wallace? Because he lost, and he was cut to pieces, and his head stuck on a pike. So when you have only the winners, there's no drama. Why is it we love athletics? Because there's going to be a winner and a loser, at least for now. Eventually, we probably won't even keep score anymore. 
But for now, there's a winner and a loser. And you could be on the losing side, and that is painful. Losing is painful. But we don't know how to deal with that anymore. Because if we don't win, we lash out. And we have to tear down what it is that made us hurt for losing. This means we're on the wrong side of history. The Abbeville Institute, of course, is on the wrong side of history, as Gail Jarvis points out in his piece, The Wrong Side of History, on Friday. We're all on the wrong side of history uh, in advocating a different perspective on the war or Southern history or Southern independence or Southern culture or Southern heritage or people like Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis or John Randolph of Roanoke or secession or nullification or Southern music or culture. We're all on the wrong side of history because the right side of history tells us the treasury of virtue the righteous cause mythology tells us that all those things are wrong because they don't fit conventional norms. You can't find anything true and valuable in something that's inherently wrong. Nothing. The curious thing about that is that Abraham Lincoln gets a free pass, or people that we know had moral failings get a free pass because they were on the right side of history, you see. And so it's okay. Those people can have those moral failings. Abraham Lincoln can say, I don't believe that, and I'm paraphrasing, white Americans and black Americans are equal. But because I saved the Union, because I was on the right side of history in that process, I get a free pass. And historians will try to find every evidence they can to show that Lincoln was changing his opinions by 1863. And he was no longer the man in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. He was something else. Because Lincoln was on the right side of history. Even though at the Hampton Roads Conference, he told Southerners, well, we'll give you five years to end slavery. I mean, we'll, we'll postpone this. Come on back in the Union. We'll pay you some money. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. Nope. Steven Spielberg, Spielberg has told us that that's not the case. You see, you can't have a myth that has any nuance to it whatsoever. It has to be the right side of history. So how do we change this? Ronald Kennedy tells us the only way to do it is the only way to drain the swamp is to continue with decentralization. Of course, he's talking about politics here, but it's also in culture. People go into D.C. saying, I'm going to drain the swamp. They're going to try from the top down. There's no way. We have, we have a situation. This is why Americans are angry, because we have a situation where everybody, everybody thinks something has to happen from the center. And that's never going to happen. And as conservatives continue to praise Abraham Lincoln, they are, as I said, undermining their own position. You can't do it from the center. It has to be done from the bottom up. It has to be done through decentralization. It has to be done to preserve culture and history. And so the only way to do that, the only way to punch holes in that treasury of virtue, to make cracks in it, is to exist. And to teach your kids, which is your primary responsibility, a different way, a different path. To show them that there is uh, nuance and subtlety and beauty in the South. Of all the things that are wrong, of all the things that are bad, every tradition has bad. And we can say that, honestly, the South has bad things in its history. Things we find abhorrent today. Things we don't care for, obviously. But there are also beautiful things in, beautiful things in the Southern tradition. Robert E. Lee's character the ideal Christian gentleman, Stonewall Jackson, the ideal Christian gentleman, 
the sacrifices Southern people were willing to make for four years was unprecedented. Even Gary Gallagher, a man who has continually bashed the quote-unquote lost cause myth in his book, The Confederate War, praised Southerners and said they were sacrificing in a way that no other people in American history ever have during that war. And not only that, when you look at the things that people think make America great, that all has to do with the Southern tradition. So, and Southern culture, all of it, white and black. But the problem is, if we eradicate, if we erase, all that is gone. And it's replaced, as Stangler said anew, every hundred years or so. So we need to continue punching holes in that treasury of virtue, in that righteous cause mythology. And we do that every week at the Abbey Bell Institute. And again, uh, we thank you for your contributions to our, to our mission to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. We thank you for all the support you give us in our conferences and our products and everything we have. Because this really is about you. We do all this for you. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're reading our material, we do it all for you. It's not for us. It's for you. It's for education. It's for providing the means to be the other on the wrong side of history. Until next time, good day. Good day.